everyone has some sort of a closet that has become too small. A closet is no place to live, and I want to support as many people as I can in stepping out of that prison into the fullness of life that is waiting for them on the other side of that door. This is Nancy Shadlock from Centered Life Coaching. Join me in listening to these coming out chronicles. Get curious about their stories and then go see what good things are waiting for you on the other side of your closet door. I want to talk to you today about the power of hearing someone else's story and it inspiring you to do something incredible. That's my hope with this whole podcast, but I want to tell you a little snippet of how that played out for me recently. I'm in a group of inspiring people. It's a Facebook group that was created by the business mentor that I'm working with right now. And it's got all kinds of inspiring stories in it of people that are stepping out and doing incredible things. And so one of the people in it shared how she reached out to a member of parliament and asked her to be on her podcast. And I was like, oh, that's incredible. But like, I would never do that. And then the next day, I was at a virtual summit for the Canadian Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, and I heard Randy Bossonot speak. And he shared about his story of coming out and what that did in his life and then how all these openings up happened for him as he stepped out. And eventually he found himself to be the advisor on LGBT issues to the Prime Minister of Canada. And I thought, that is an incredible coming out story. I would love to have that on my podcast. And so I just reached out and asked because this person in my Facebook group said all she did was ask. And I thought, I'm going to do that too. Sure enough, here we are today with Randy's story. I'm so excited to share it with you. And I look forward to seeing the ripple effects that it has in your life as you get inspired to do brave and bold things. Uh, my name is Randy Boissonneau, and I'm a former member of parliament right here in Edmonton Centre and a former special advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on LGBTQ2 issues. It depends how, how far back you want to go, Nancy. I'm an entrepreneur. I founded uh, Literacy Without Borders, uh, an organization that's been helping people to read in Belize for now. 10 years and uh, completed the Ironman triathlon in my sister's memory in 2007 and uh, was fortunate enough to be awarded the Rhodes Scholarship. So I studied at Oxford where I read philosophy, politics, and economics. And prior to that was student union president at the University of Alberta uh, after having started at uh, Campus Saint-Jean, of which I am a proud graduate. And my company, Xenix, which I'm now running again, is a CGLCC certified company, so LGBTQ2 certified here in Canada. So that's been a milestone for us. And um, I, as I've been telling people, there's life after politics. And so it's a lot of fun. <laughs> awesome. Well, tell us if we, we might as well just jump right in. What, sure. tell us about your coming out story. What was the scene? What was going on for you? It's interesting because I've been able to reflect on it a lot um, as special advisor, because there were a number of opportunities to meet with people one-on-one or in groups or, or, you know, give remarks. And part of that is reflecting and, and sharing stories and I think it's a, some context is, is might be helpful. 
1970 baby. So the people very wisely doing the math on the podcast will know that this is a, a milestone summer birthday. I'm, a, I'm born on July 14th, Bastille Day. And um, so 50 is coming up. And what's interesting is if you think about when I was 20, 21, when I really started to know that I was different, um, this was not even Ralph Klein's Alberta yet. It was still Don Getty's Alberta. Mm-hmm. And so we had a whole bunch of fight to come ahead of us with the Delman Vreen case and uh, Klein threatening to use the notwithstanding clause. So there weren't even any LGBT actors out. There were no even gay or lesbian characters on TV yet. Mm-hmm. And so I was convinced that my difference was going to exclude me from society, that I wouldn't be loved. I would lose my family. I wouldn't have any friends. I would never have a job and absolutely, completely, and utterly forget about politics. And so I knew something was up when I was at university and I was already already student union president and we had just held a national meeting of like-minded student unions to create a a buying group, which would eventually become the Canadian Alliance of Student Associations, uh, um, a a competitor, if you will, to the Canadian Federation of Students. But we had just held this big conference and um, I had to leave work one day because I didn't have any mental energy to hide anymore. And so mm. my vice president, my friend Terrence, uh, vice president external said, you're off. Like, let's just go watch a movie or something. Let's just get out of here. So we did. And I was quiet the whole day. I was quiet because I was in my own head. And, um, and he said to me, what is up with you? And I said, what does it mean when I spend more time looking at when a couple's walking down the street and I spend more time focusing on the guy than the girl? And he says, I don't know what it means, but you're always going to be my friend. And then I broke down and started crying and he just gave me a hug. Mm. And that was it. And I knew I had one friend, one friend in the world. Mm. Um, and that's what I, that's how I built my new identity is just off the fact that that deep, dark secret um, wasn't, you know, enough to, to repel my dear friend Terrence. And so I could at least build from there, but I still was in the closet. Like I went to Oxford and I was so deeply in the closet that when the LGBT uh, group would meet every third Wednesday, third Thursday, I would be so far from Cor- Corpus Christi, my college, uh, but still in the Oxford, you know, precinct so I could keep my stipend. Um, but you couldn't see me anywhere near Corpus because I simply didn't want to be, um, I didn't want to face that fear. It was too, too immediate, too, too personal. And so I, I lived my whole life in uh, Oxford. Um, I mean, I had a girlfriend and we would go to London and um, Rebecca at one point, uh, after we'd been to see some Shakespeare at the Barbican, pushed me up against a wall and said, there's something in you that I can't get. There's like, there's mm-hmm. a wall. There's some part of you that you will just not let me have access to. And she was right, because I, I couldn't. And later, when I came out and we had a conversation, and she's like, oh my God, I wish I knew my brother's gay. <laughs> <laughs> so she went on to a great career in the law in the city in uh, London, and we've stayed in touch. But it's all these lies that we tell ourselves. It's all this fear. And, and identity is so central to just being able to navigate. So I figure that I probably spent 25 to 30%, maybe even more of my mental energy just trying to hide and just trying to be a straight guy. And, and when I came out, people were like, oh my God, this is full you? I'm like, oh yeah. And the other guy's not coming back. Like, could we have 60 or 80% Randy? I'm like, no, you're getting 100% Randy all the time. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because since... Then, and in my political career, I have had young people, and interestingly enough, mostly trans people come to me and say, people are asking me to be less myself now that I'm in transition. And what do you say to that? I say, tell them to go, you know, tell them to 
tell them to mind their own business because you are you and you have to be 100% full of you. And you went through the transition, not to be the person you were before, to be yourself, to be who you're meant to be. And so that living, you know, living your full self is really important. And it was brought back to me now, almost 25 years later, when um, then Minister of International Trade and Diversification, Jim Carr and I led the first trade mission of LGBT-owned businesses in Canada to what was then the, what is still the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce annual summit. And this was in Philadelphia. And um, we were in this meeting and it was supplier diversity and there was 15 Canadian companies, the minister and myself, and there was 50, 50 Fortune 500 companies, each with a rep in this huge ballroom in this big square. It was like cavernous. And I'm like, the Americans are so far ahead of us when it comes to supplier diversity. But after that meeting and after a couple of other meetings, Jim turns to me and he says, Randy, there's a different vibe here. He's like, everybody's so happy. They're just so comfortable. They're just so relaxed. I'm like, Jim, every single person who's here has had to face the gauntlet and look into the abyss of having nobody around them to be fully who they're meant to be. Mm-hmm. They don't have any hangups anymore. They're just fully happy to be who they are now. He goes, oh my God, I love the vibration here. He's like, I was an ally before. He's like, now I'm a super ally. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what happens when you get over all the fear and you can live and be your full self. And I was um, on a language course to Spain because I made a promise to myself when I took the flight over to Oxford uh, that I would learn two other languages. So I started with German and got a basic grounding and then I picked up Spanish and it started a lifelong uh, love affair, if you will, with Spanish, with the Latin culture and, and the countries and the food and the weather and everything. And um, what was important is that I had the opportunity to uh, go study at Granada at uh, La Escuela Carmen de las Cuevas, right next to the Alhambra. And um, one of my colleagues went with me. He's a Canadian, a fellow Rhodes Scholar, uh, my friend Philip. And um, we were in a class. There might have been eight of us in the class. And what's interesting about learning multiple languages is you learn them in the order, like it's reverse order. So I learned English first and then French then Spanish, or then German, then Spanish. So when I was struggling for a Spanish word, I wouldn't go to the English or the French. The German would come out. So mm-hmm. people couldn't figure out where I was from. Anyway, one day, the prof, we would have been almost a week into the course, um, somebody used the word Fifi, and the prof heard that, and he was a little concerned, and he said in Spanish, what's a Fifi? And this woman from Switzerland leaned over and pointed all the way across the class to me. Mm. Mm. And then I was gutted because Phil's like, oh my God, my poor friend. And they thought we were a couple (laughs) and we weren't. And uh, he was, you know, he was fiance and he was going to get married. He now has four kids, but that was the decision. And that would have probably been, I think that was 96, um, March of 96, actually. And that's when I decided, no way, that's not happening to me again. And so finished up at Oxford, came back home, negotiated, um, uh, six months, no, three months out to travel with a new company that I was going to work with. And I went on a literally a, a Southeast Asia tour for three months with my backpack to kind of shed the old self and realize that I was going to be the new me. And I actually went and talked to friends who were teaching English in Japan and different parts of the world. And, and that was where the coming out process started. So I literally started about as far away from home as you can, <laughs> like Japan and Malaysia, and worked my way back to Canada, and then obviously told my family last. And the last person in my family I told was my brother, and 
he was driving a red truck at the time. I was living just off White Ave and he pulled up and we were going to go to Dairy Queen for lunch. <clears throat> and uh, he's in the truck and he's like, you're so quiet. What's up? And I said, I got something to tell you. He's like, what is it? I said, I'm gay. He goes, yeah, I know. I'm like, what do you mean? You know, you're like, well, he's like, half your friends are, and you never laugh at any of my jokes. So laugh, lad, of course you are. And I'm like, that's it. He goes, yeah. He goes, we're still going to Dairy Queen. And we went to Dairy Queen. That was it. <laughs> and when I told my folks, I mean, I'm adopted. And uh, so it was my sister. Um, and uh, I told them at the lake, we have a property out at Lexington. And uh, when I told them and I came out, I thought, this is it. I'm going to be excommunicated. Uh, Cause you know, we were raised Catholic. And while I was telling my story, I mean, the tears were coming down my face and they were both smiling at me. And um, they said, we knew. And I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> and they said, you had to be ready to tell us yourself. Right. And, or, uh, or you needed to have the lady in your Spanish class tell you. Well, she had to push <laughs> me out of the nest, right? And that kicked me out of the closet. And, and it was interesting. I, what I actually said to them is, you adopted a gay baby. And uh, they said, we knew. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me? And they said, because you, you had to tell us yourself when you were ready. And um, so, yeah, they said, we loved you the day we picked you up and we love you today. And so mm -hmm. here are two people, my dad, who, you know, got grade eight because the nun said, don't come back a third time, go work the fields and we'll give you a grade eight. And my mom with a grade 12 education, um, who at the core of it, it's love. And this was... I was their son and always was going to be their son and, and uh, finally faced up with, you know, to my fears and identity. And then, then I never looked back and uh, life's been amazing ever mm -hmm. since. That's amazing. What a beautiful posture from your parents. Well, it was, Oh, look, I will, I will keep my friend's identity a secret, but uh, 20, so I was 27 at the time. And, um, and I wanted to come out before my brother's wedding because he was, he was getting married that summer. And I, I wanted to bring my partner at the time, not as a friend, in quotes, right? I wanted mm -hmm. to bring my, 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 my partner. And, um, but a friend of mine, that same weekend that I came out to my folks, came out to his folks in rural Alberta. And um, both, one a doctor, one a lawyer. And that weekend, they were going to send him to camp. They were sending him to conversion therapy Conversion camp. camp. Wow. Yep. And um, all religious-based because it wasn't about him. It was about them. Right. Right? Because when you come out, you out your parents. Yeah. And so at, at the wedding, because uh, my cousin got married first and then my brother got married, my dad could feel that something was different because I was with my partner and I was more relaxed. And he couldn't, because this was his first public event being outed, so to speak. And he couldn't quite, you know quite converse with my partner me but he kept bringing us drinks nice. <laughs> that was that was his way to say it was a toonie bar or a loony bar at the time and that was his way to say i love you but i don't know how to handle this so i'm just gonna give you drinks because mm -hmm. we both need to get drunk <laughs> all three of us need to need the happy juice to get through this and that's been great i mean uh my partner david and i now two and a half years and uh my mom refers to us. So there's my brother and I now, my sister passed away in, um, in 97 and, um, and I didn't get to tell her. And that's, that's a big regret. I was going to tell her and she passed away. Uh, I'd been back from Oxford for nine days and I lost my little sister. Mm. Um, and medical science still doesn't know why. And, um, she all, yeah, she was at her desk, uh, at work. She'd taken a gap year and, um, collapsed, uh, at her desk and was at the hospital within 20 minutes and she was gone en route. And uh, fully healthy 20-year-old, flaming red hair, amazing, amazing woman, amazing temper. 
um, taught me how to read fast. She was a speed reader and I didn't even know that was a thing. Um, and what's, what's amazing is that, um, you can't wait. Like when you get that close, you just got to tell people because you literally don't know what's going to happen, uh, the next day. And so my mom now refers to David and me and Mark as her boys. Hmm. So she likes having her boys out of the lake. So Hmm. that's awesome. I totally get that feeling of needing to kind of extricate yourself from your normal life and figure it out and then kind of re-enter having that. I was in the back of a jeepney in, in the Philippines. <laughs> uh, and my family was, my friends were clever because they made me stay with like extended relatives because they were concerned for safety. But that meant I couldn't explore. Like I couldn't go to Melilla. I couldn't go to any of the bars. I was like with the family. And as I left, as I left um, their island in the back of a jeepney to get to the boat, I could just feel that old self washing out of me because it was the first time that I was starting to get the eyes from the guys. Like the guys were starting to get that I was on their team and they were trying to communicate, but I couldn't do anything because I wasn't staying in a hotel. I wasn't solo, but I remember grieving on that trip. I remember a lot of times where I would just have to, you know, let that old self go. I left commercial drive in Vancouver, which I would call the lesbian capital of Canada and moved to conservative Calgary mm-hmm. and came out because I, I think I felt that anonymity where I was like not in the spotlight so much. My normal right. life, I had a practice there where I met with people and helped them listen to their soul. And I was like, they will never listen to me if I come out, like, especially in conservative Christian circles, like, woof, no way. But here I felt a little bit of anonymity and was able to explore it for myself and had a very similar experience at a, at a bar in Mexico where someone was like, I don't know if you're gay, but I think you might be gay. <laughs> it's like, ah, I'm out. No but yep. also sometimes we need that little push to get us going. And you can build your own identity in a new place. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and if family is, is weird or tough or challenging, then like so many of us do, we build our own family. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and you just define family in a new way. And, um, and I think what's important, particularly this summer, as we're doing this podcast is, is identifying and, and remembering that that people have built their families and that, you know, some of what we thought was the family of, of activism and rights in the, you know, in the eighties, the nineties and into the two thousands, once we got some rights, then people left other parts of the family behind. Like people forgot about people of color and trans people and some of the fiercest activists and, you know, defenders of rights um, still to this day feel, you know, left behind. And so the intersectionality of the movement, the intersectionality of rights, I mean, I was very surprised by the uh, United States Supreme Court decision, very heartened by it. Um, But that vigilance when it comes to our rights is really important. It just takes, you know... um, uh, a provincial premier or a court at some point to rule against us. And, and then we have a whole bunch more work ahead of us. And so I think that that sense of, of community and bring, making sure that everybody uh, gets to enjoy their full rights. I just read an article this morning that in the workplace, what prevents people from either wanting to be part of the workplace or moving up is a sense of onlyness. It was a McKinsey article. And the more intersectionalities you have, the more chances are you're the only person like you in that company, even a big company, right? So if you are a racialized person who's also trans, 
how many people like you are in that company, even a big bank or a big insurance company? And so if you don't have anybody else to relate to, if you're if your single onlyness is a double or triple onlyness, then why you're not going to want to stay and you're going to want to try to do something else. And that's where, you know, a lot of members of the community get trapped in the gig economy or precarious employment or um, other ways to, you know, just basically meet their basic needs that, um, you know, can lead to, can lead to harm and violence and, and, and other situations. Yeah. I, I see that mirroring as so important. And I think that's a lot of what drew me to reach out to you. You were speaking at a conference I was attending virtually right. um, for the CGLCC. And, mm-hmm. and I was so inspired by the way that you talked about all the goodness that opened up for you after you came out. And so I wondered if you could share that with us and be a mirror of like, better is possible. And this is what it looked like for me. Sure. Uh, so I would have, I came out in 97 and like I said, I missed tell, I missed telling my sister. And so I'm not missing. So I made a vow to myself to not miss telling anybody else. But then I think you, you may relate to this and maybe people on the podcast do you get to a point where you're tired of telling anybody. You don't want to tell anybody anymore. (laughs) You just want to be yourself. And so people figure it out or they don't. I mean, the fact that I had been out so 97 and then I was with the company for a while. And in 99, I started my own company and I never once at that point said, LGBT owned. I don't even think certification existed at the time. If it did, it was so far away in Toronto that I didn't look for it. And, but it was never an issue. Like my clients, if they knew about it, they talked about it amongst themselves, but I never raised it and it never came up and friends became friends and, you know, you just build a network. Um, and I struggled. It wasn't easy to build the business when we did. And I almost, almost threw in the towel, but decided to keep going another year or two. And then things get easier because you get known and you do good work and and it builds on that. Um, but I can tell you that I had my own process. Like, like I didn't go to prides for probably the first year after being out. Like I would go to the lake. It was just mm-hmm. too wild, too wacky. Yeah. I mean, uh, from a conservative rural boy growing up in Morinville to come to the city to then be thrown into even what was a modest, probably very, you know, basic pride in the early nineties. Um, but then I decided, nope, I have to go do this. And I remember the first year that I went and, and just walked at the end of the march. So nobody could really see. And then fast forward 10 years, and I'm leading the march with the leader of the Liberal Party who ends up being the prime minister. And um, I didn't expect the role of special advisor. In fact, um, somebody who is an Edmontonian now lives in Toronto, Doug Kerr, he, lives, he leads the Dignity Network, which is a bunch of Canadian NGOs that work with international LGBT driven NGOs to make lives better for people around the world. He happened to be in Edmonton. He came to my constituency office and he said, we're having this international conference in June. Would you speak? And I said, what day? I said, no, it's like June 6th, 7th, 8th. And this was, we, he was meeting with me in my office. It was April. I said, well, if we did something big and bold, could you like pause the conference and bring everybody to Parliament Hill? He was like, what do you have in mind? And I'm like, I don't think we've ever raised the pride flag on Parliament Hill. And if we have, certainly the prime minister has never raised it. He's like, are you actually thinking of raising the pride flag during my international conference? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then I said something that you should never say as a rookie parliamentarian, even as a seasoned parliamentarian, you should probably never say the words, how hard could that be? <laughs> Turns out the lawn in front of Parliament is like a, like it's a, like a military compound. Like every square inch of that is, is managed or has to be approved by five different agencies of which two of them are like 
paramilitary, like one's the RCMP, the other's the protective services of the, of the Hill, and then there's protocol. Anyway, turned out that Monday of that week, I didn't have a location, I didn't have a flag, I didn't have any support. By Tuesday, managed to get the Prime Minister's office involved, still didn't know where it was going to be. Wednesday morning, I had assurances that we would have a flag, we'd have a flagpole, we'd have a great location, because we were doing this Wednesday afternoon. We'd put the flyers on all the desks, like people were coming. <laughs> and at, at four o'clock on that day, we raised the pride flag for the first time in history. And it was the prime minister who raised it. And we had 400 people within 24 hours show up on the, on the hill. Mm-hmm. Tour buses stopped. Tour buses demanded that their drivers stop so they could come and take photos mm-hmm. of that pride flag because they couldn't do it in their own country. Wow. And, and that flagpole stayed up there until... 7.30, 8 o'clock before Public Works came and took it away, we didn't leave. We, did, we were there. We were helping people take photos. We took photos with them. People drove from Montreal. They drove from Toronto. They came from, they heard that this was happening. And then they went global. Like people couldn't believe that Canada had just done this. And so that was um, something we did because we thought it was the right thing to do. It was a good way to mark uh, Pride Month. And, that, and then I said, you know what? There are prides in my province that happen in September. So we got to stop with this Pride Month stuff. It's too Toronto specific. <laughs> and so I said, it's called Pride Season now. And it was like, oh, you're right. Because Whistler actually has their pride in February. Jasper mm-hmm. has their pride in March. And now Ottawa has added to Winterlude with a winter pride. And mm-hmm. so we actually talk about Pride Season now. And so, look, it wasn't until this would have been June of 2016. It wasn't until November that the prime minister called me and asked me if I would serve as a special advisor. And what do you do when the prime minister calls you and asks you to do something? You just say yes. <laughs> but I was speechless, literally speechless. And I said, I said, prime minister, I'm, I'm speechless. And he starts laughing, a full belly laugh. He says, oh, Randy, we both know that won't last very long. Uh, he said, but the community needs help. It needs a champion. It needs support. And uh, I said, I'm happy to do this. Will there be resources? Because I'm not going to do this if it's just a figurehead and a title. He said, see, I told you you're becoming a good MP. You're asking the right <laughs> questions. He said, there will be a secretariat. It'll be in the Privy Council office. You'll have staff. You'll have a team. And, and I need you to work with this community because we have more work to do. Mm-hmm. And that's what we did. We got busy. And then I got, I mean, I waited. I didn't wait until the secretariat was set up. Um, I started meeting with people around the country. And my first meeting took place in Winnipeg. And I met with Indigenous elders I met with people of color. I met with the seniors group. I met with a whole bunch of trans um, activists and and people just trying to find their way. And we created this safe space before the first round table. And um, 15 and 16-year-old gender non-binary people came. And this 74-year-old trans woman Mm -hmm. who had done her transition 30 years before was a was a person in the federal public service, said she had a great transition, a great career, wasn't really an activist while she was working, but now it was time. And at the end of the session, once they talked and shared their experience and and what they'd hoped to see from the federal government, um, one of the gender non-binary people who used the name Kyle, they said, um, because I asked what the key learnings were, and they said, um, well... I didn't know that as trans people, non-binary people, we got to be so old. <laughs> but then they said, and I didn't know how beautiful we are when we get that old. Mm. Whole room starts crying, right? Yeah. But they lived in the same city and they had no way to meet. Right. 
There was no, it was, that's when I realized there's a convening power and there's a, just the simple fact of putting people in the room and making sure that everybody gets to use their voice. Mm-hmm. That is what is important. And fast forward three years later, I'm no longer the, I'm no longer the MP and um, minister comes to our city to make an announcement at pride center of Edmonton. And um, there's a two spirit representative uh, there and uh, she comes up to me um, before the se- session and she says, Elder Ed sent me. And he said, because Randy's there, it's a safe space. He says, he is the sharer of voices. I'm like, what does that mean? She goes, Ed has seen you and the elders have seen you. And every time you're moderating or coordinating a meeting, you make sure everybody has, has their voice heard. Mm. She said, so I'm here and I'm very scared but I know you're going to help me share my voice. Hmm. That's what it's all about. Um, I mean, we got to help people share their voices because there's way too many voices that have not been heard. Yeah. Here, here. That's what this is all about. Yeah. And it's great. I mean, I mean the, the rise of podcasts, right? Who knew? And I mean, just people download them and walk and go and listen and, and get inspired to maybe create their own way to share voices. I mean, I still, and it'll be interesting with the timing, but I've been waiting to do my pod, not my, my podcast. I've been waiting to do my pride video because um, I'm going to do a, and I'm not in any hurry because it's pride season, not pride month. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to make a point of that in the video, but I'm also going to, I'm also going to say that this is a reflective pride and this is a pride where we need to do, we need to, in some respects, stop talking and start acting about certain things and just move uh, and make space for people. And so that's going to be an important part of it. Um, but we have to, we have to keep each other accountable and we have to keep each other honest. And I, and we have to, you know, we also have to realize that people are going to learn through this. I mean, I didn't, I learned, um, what I've learned and there's still more learning to go about the struggles and the challenge, uh, of trans people in my role as special advisor and, um, passing legislation to protect trans people in the criminal code and hate speech and also in the, um, um, Canadian Human Rights Commission um, legislation is critical. And uh, I remember a reporter asking um, 12-year-old Charlie, who was one of our spokespeople, uh, they were getting testy. The journalists were getting testy. I'm like, God, this can't possibly make a difference. And one of the journalists actually shot a question right at Charlie and said, how can this legislation possibly make a difference in your life? And <laughs> she went by the pronoun she, and she, 12 years old, Charlie, stares them right back in the face and said, stop right there. This legislation is going to make sure I can get an apartment. This legislation is going to make sure that they can't fire me from a job. This legislation is going to make sure that if you write something nasty, that I can go after you as a journalist. So Mm -hmm. this is going to save lives and make my life better. (laughs) No more questions from the journalists about whether this was going to make a difference because they had no idea, right? They'd never walked in in at least the journalists that were there didn't know the struggles and the challenges of somebody who's decided to transition. And, and so good for Charlie. This episode of the coming out Chronicles was brought to you by centered life coaching. We help you know yourself to free yourself and be yourself. So you can live the fullest expression of who you really are. Stay tuned. There's more to come in this episode.
So without being a member of parliament anymore, I'm, I'm guessing that you're someone that just keeps growing and just keeps challenging himself. And in that progression, there's likely to be a whole nother coming out period for you. And so as you kind of lean into that, what, what would you say is your next coming out? So it's interesting because I, I put on a bunch of weight and everybody jokes about the parliamentary weight. It's no joke. I mean, <laughs> just getting back and forth to Ottawa, if you eat what they serve you on that plane, it's like all your day's calories in three and a half, four hours. So you shouldn't do that. And I did. And so uh, there was a number in front of my weight on the scale that I didn't like. That number is now gone, but I'm down 15. I got another 10 to go. And that's a process. Like that's a, that's, there's a whole introspection process. There's a whole, you know, when you go back to eating well and, and fitness there's a self-discovery there. Um, what's happened though is be, I now have the freedom. And it's interesting because without COVID, I would literally be traveling the world, working on different LGBT issues, uh, invitations from different prides, the Equal Rights Coalition, which Canada and um, Chile were co-chairs of in uh, 2017 to 2019. We passed now to the Brits and to the um, Argentines. They were supposed to have a big meeting at the end of May. I was going to be there. Everything was pushed till December. I suspect with COVID, it won't happen until April or May of 2021. Um, that said, though, we are continuing to push on conversion therapy. I was part of the uh, panel of experts convened by the United Nations, uh, independent expert on SOGI matters, Victor Magical Borlos, uh, in Boston in May, in March, just before everything shut down. Um, and then he released his report. I continue to work with municipalities that want to um, pass legislation to ban conversion therapy. Um, I'm at the disposal of the Minister of Justice and the Ministry of Justice as they get looking to set up their working group. It's hard with COVID, um, but I've been, you know, on a, on a few Zooms with LGBT Chambers of Commerce. Like we just did one last week with uh, the Colombian Chamber of Commerce and they had 120 businesses on there about how do they, and they're not necessarily LGBT owned businesses. They're Colombian businesses that want to export and do work with Canada. And we're like, how can we do more to embrace diversity and inclusion? So that's very cool. I moderated a panel for the Conference Board of Canada on diversity and inclusion. And my message, as moderator, you can put some messages out there, is this recovery needs to be equitable. And every business owner listening on this podcast right now should think about how their business is diverse by design. Mm. It's the only way that it happens. And there was a great line that somebody used on that panel um, diversity is being invited to the dance. Inclusion is when somebody invites you to dance. Mm -hmm. So everybody listening to this podcast, when's the last time you asked somebody different from you to dance? Because mm -hmm. that's what we all have to do. And I have a TEDx, a TEDx University of Alberta um, talk coming up, which was supposed to happen literally the day after we shut everything down in, in March. And, uh, but we just couldn't keep, we couldn't put 200 people in an auditorium when we didn't know what the virus was. And, uh, and we knew less than we know now. And so my message there is um, we need champions. I love allies. I cultivate allies. I, I support and, and help and equip allies. But now we need to get from allyship to championship. And what I mean by that is an ally is somebody who's got my back when I'm in the room. But a champion is somebody who has my back when I'm not in the room. Hmm. And, and we need more champions. Well, we need more champions and we need people who are going to invite us in. Mm -hmm. And so that's an important element now. And I mean, some, 
I mean, I was reading books and I took time away after the election and went to my happy place, which is in many, well, Buenos Aires. I, I spent a lot of time there learning tango and Spanish uh, in the early 2000s. And um, it's been recently that I've been, you know, happy enough and uh, ready enough to start setting up new goals. And I thought, ah, oh, three or four would be good. Ten. Like, come in, okay, I have ten goals. So we'll see. I mean, piano, being able to play three jazz piano songs is great. That was a more intense goal when it was cold and, and snowy outside. Uh, a little less so now that it feels like summer here. Um, but it's good to have those goals. It's good to push. It's good to feel like a, a newbie in some respects. And so, I'm, I mean, my consulting business is, 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 has been revived. And um, we're also working on a, well, we've started a, a PPE company that's, actually turned out to be able to support a bunch of the seniors facilities here in Edmonton. And so that's very rewarding to know that we're, we're doing that piece to keep people safe. And, um, and then there are other goals in terms of continuing to fight for LGBT rights around the world. Um, a former minister in David Cameron's government in the United Kingdom and I, his name is Nick Herbert, created the Global Equality Caucus. Uh, I had attended enough interparliamentary meetings and realized that there were LGBT people there, but we didn't have a forum. And we were kind of meeting on the margins or we'd kind of try to get our issues. I mean, that's one way to do it. But the other way to do it is to bring together a group of LGBT uh, Q2 elected people around the world. So at the national level, the provincial or state level and the municipal level and create a global caucus. And so we've called it the Global Equality Caucus. It launched in New York in uh, 2019 at uh, New York's World Pride. And it's growing and it's about no discrimination. It's about no violence. Let's start at the no violence against LGBT people because there's still way too many countries in the world where violence is a, is a daily threat. We want people to have access to their, their medical needs, um, antiretrovirals if it's an HIV question or support uh, for transition if that's what's needed. And we need to, we need governments to collect better data on the community so that we can actually do proper, um, not just analysis of the data, but we, without the data, you can actually make a case for policy changes or for funding to change. And then the, the, the fifth thing that we're po- pushing is for governments and corporations to do more to fund LGBTQ2 initiatives. And I think I can say that, you know, part of being my full self was I was not giving up until we found 20 million bucks over two years for the LGBTQ community here in Canada. And that's now grown to 50 million over five years. And we also managed to carve away $30 million over five years and then $10 million a year ongoing uh, for LGBTQ2 organizations here in Canada to do work around the world. And so we literally dislodged about $100 million bucks in the last six months of my mandate because I simply wouldn't take no for an answer. But we did it as a team and we did it as allies and we did it as, as friends and people who knew that the community needed this. And so, yeah, I, if... if if Parliament never happens for me again, I can say, hey, we, we did, you know, great things in a short amount of time. Um, and that LGBTQ secretariat. And when you get things right, when you have leadership at the top, when you have support, when you have people that want to see good work getting done, uh, you literally can move mountains because there were some things that we were able to do and we managed to get done that I didn't, I thought would take us 10 years or more. And we got it done in about three. So who knows? Maybe Parliament again, but for now, it's it's work on those ten goals, 
enjoy some of the summer here and um, do some traveling once it's safe to, to do that again. Amazing. You are doing such great work in the world. Thank you for being 100% your whole self. And there are no back now. <laughs> and I've been, I've been talking with people who've already turned 50 and they say, oh, you're going to love it. 50s, 50s are the best decade. I'm like, well, bring it on. Let's see. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you for sharing your stories with us today. My pleasure. Have a great pride season. And uh, I look forward to chatting again soon. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Coming Out Chronicles. If you enjoyed it and you think it would be helpful for someone else, please share it with them. If you'd like to connect with me, reach out on social. I'd love to support you in the next chapter of your coming out story. I can help you know yourself, free yourself, and be yourself. Until next time, this is Nancy Shadlock from Centered Life Coaching.